Welcome to the journey of an aesthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Welcome to Journey of an Aesthete. You're on the show. All right. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being on the show. The, you know, mainly, of course, uh, your time and generosity because um, it's uh, there. Are, you know, I'm going to do a little blurb up front if you don't mind. But there, are, you know, I had many kinds of guests on my show. Um, some guests are, are are famous. Some guests are um, less well known, and then there are guests who I've never met. You know, I only know their work. And then right. there are guests like our current uh, current guest now, Alexander Carter, who I know personally, right? Uh, I believe I met you in 2008, nine. When was it? No, I think we met in like 2004 when I started uh, interning at the Mills Gallery. The Mills Gallery. Thank you. I needed to, yeah. I needed you on the show to, to sort of fix my brain and, Get the get the linear chronology, uh, it, it, right? Um, but I mean, I um, for many reasons uh, you're on the show because you're you're an excellent painter, and you've had an unusual life. We can talk about your journey, uh, not just in paint, uh, but also how you grew up um, and where you've lived and all that. So, do you mind doing a little uh, biographical journey? And we talk about, so it would have been 2004, you would have been in your 20s, I imagine, right? Um, I was like 19, yeah. Wow. Yep. At that time, I don't, yeah, at that time, I don't think I knew that you, I knew you were interested in art in the Mills Gallery, and I knew that you painted, but I don't think I knew anything about your farm, farm background. Do you mind... Well, starting wherever you feel like starting, talking about you. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. I feel like because I was so close to it then, and I was still basically living on the Cranberry Farm, it, it I didn't recognize it yet as being such a big part of my identity. But it was once I really moved away that um, and being kind of like separated from it, I, I realized uh, how different it was from most people and mm -hmm. um so yeah i grew up on a cranberry farm in kingston massachusetts which is kind of close to cape cod right right next to plymouth really and um that is actually where cranberries began basically um that's where the first yeah that's where the first cranberry vines were found and harvested and they're indigenous to North America. It's the only, um, like you've heard of cranberries probably in Scandinavia and in Russia, but those are actually a, a whole different um, species. There's the Vaccinium macrocarpin is the American cranberry, and it's a, it's a large cranberry. It's very different from mm -hmm. uh, European cranberries. And um, yeah, so I grew up with my father and his brother running this small farm, which really, um, it's really like, like when they told me when I was a kid that we lived on a farm, I was like, that's, that's not true because we didn't have like farm animals. We didn't have your typical trappings of a farm, but it was a farm. It, they were, there were working growers of this very specific plant. And, um, 
it is really, uh, it, it revolves around mechanics, really. And my father was a mechanical engineer, and it was all about kind of the machinery that that harvested these berries, and it was like the, the year-round maintenance of that that machinery, and then kind of the year-round combating of the seasons to keep these berries um, good and alive for when they're harvested in the fall. And um, so, yeah, my life kind of revolves around that sequence of, of growing seasons and okay. harvest seasons. Do you mind if I ask you? Uh, uh, hold, yeah. hold that thought. I want to ask you some technical questions because, you know, I'm not I'm far from an expert on horticulture or agriculture or any of that. Um, but what when you say the very first cranberry cultivation, what are you talking about in what period of human history? With this, with this, big- um, not that long ago, you know, and I, of course, the the indigenous cultures were using cranberries for a long time, mm-hmm. but they weren't commercially, um, at like harvested until maybe like 200 years ago, maybe 300 years ago, but I, I think it was more 1800s. Well, the 1800s, 1700s, right? I would think. Yeah. So that's so. Yeah. so your, the farming that you were experiencing it goes back to that, I guess that era. And I guess yeah. I was wondering, you know, as far as fruit goes, there's certain fruit I really like, and there's certain fruit I don't. I mean, I I really love cranberries. I um, I love nectar. I love nectarines and plums. I tend to like more sour fruit. Mm-hmm. So of course I'm going to like cranberries, right? It's like kind of like a pomegranate. Um, as opposed to the more sweet fruit, but um, you, so you were, uh, I guess, when you were a little girl, were you alongside doing this kind of, I guess, this kind of uh, work in, in the, uh, was it, a, was it like a farm, right? It was a farm, and it, so there were mechanical things having to do with, does it have to do with preserving the fruit or protecting it, or what? Explain. A little bit more about what that what that entailed or what did. Sure, like the the way that cranberry farming basically works is cranberries grow on a vine the same way that like grapes do, um, but they're completely kind of ground when they don't mm-hmm. grow up on trellises the way that um, you see in vineyards. But they're kind of in plots that way, and and so these old cranberry um, cranberry bogs is what they're called which is what my father kind of invested in these that have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. We're kind of like these chain linked areas of cranberry bogs. And mm-hmm. the way that it works is that um, when it's a dry kind of marshy area that have these like kind of ditches all around. And during harvest season, what they do is they flood those bogs with water mm-hmm. and they're kind of in like a recessed area. And then they go in with these machines. These are like probably the, some of the most important machines involved, which are cranberry pickers. And they mm-hmm. kind of comb the berries off of the vine. Mm-hmm. And because the berries have air in them, I don't know if any, you know, if you've, you've bit into a raw cranberry, but it's like, it's got these four air chambers in it. Mm-hmm. So they float on the surface of the water. Once that water, so that's the kind of, that's the whole reason for flooding is, is it is it makes it easier to gather the berries and mm-hmm. um, 
that's the industrial way of doing it. There are dry harvested cranberries, and so that's like hand-picked. Mm. And that's what you get in bags when you buy them in bags because that way they don't get like beat up and mm. whatnot. But almost all cranberry production goes towards juice. Mm. Like there's only a very small um, amount of it that goes to like selling whole. Oh, so, um, yeah, that's how it's, it's, kind like, of it's, it's like, yeah. It's mostly liquid and liquid and juice. That's the that's the like, yeah. yeah. Um. So so I think it's is it would it be fair to say that you were learning like a family business at that time when you were when you were a little kid or you were you know on that farm. Um, somewhat. I mean, my dad he never like put any pressure or expectation for any of us to kind of um, take on the business. And thankfully now, like. My father's not around anymore, but my huh. uncle is, and my my cousin is kind of the one who's taking care of what is left. I mean, the cranberry business went through a whole kind of economic uh, uh, break crisis, and um, kind of there was overproduction, and small growers like my father and my uncle kind of got um, screwed over mm-hmm. in a way, and they had to sell a lot of their land in the end, so... They did really well with it for like mm. a while for my whole like my whole childhood. Mm. But once I was a teenager, it wasn't doing that well anymore. So it wasn't like this like the glorious thing that kind of it was when I was growing up. And so you, um, you, felt, it, I, so you felt personally this economic change having to do with the, I guess the nature of the market for the crop and 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 your familial experience of that so you must have felt that shit yeah when did you and because i'm looking i can tell you what i'm staying in front of right now and it's really extraordinary is uh, the amazons with the the legs the feet coming out of the i mean i'm just looking at these at some of your paintings here um when did you first realize that you had the interest to to paint or to you know do the, the kind of um work like you came to do you came to do as an adult and later on yeah I from like as long as I can remember I mean I was just I was surrounded by people doing what they loved doing like my dad his job like he loved it and he loved like solving problems with machinery and um, he loved the fact that he didn't put on a tie and drive into Boston every day. He always bragged about that to me. And so it was like, kind of like, um, like it was very encouraged for me to follow whatever, um, I, I found to float, you know, to, to get my juices flowing. And mm-hmm. my mother was, um, she was always a very, um, art kind of driven person and, Oh, she had her own kind of small business making decorative, doing decorative painting, like in people's houses mm-hmm. and stuff. So she always had like a little studio and I always, I was, expo- so I was exposed to that from day one. Mm-hmm. And that gave me all the materials and the space that I needed to kind of just explore that. And, um, you know, she put me in some painting classes when I was very young and so I was able to, uh, really hone my technique when I was really quite young. And so by the time I got to college, it was like very, I was very comfortable technically. So that was the time to really explore 
um, conceptually so, kind so of what I was working on. So I, I guess I would have met you 2004 and you were would have been 19, so that was the college period. Yeah. And you were, were you working at the Mills Gallery? Yeah, I was an intern there. I was a volunteer. Okay. Yeah. I used to hang out there and go to all the shows and I remember Adrian Rain and other people were there and I have a kind of fond memories of that of that time. It's just seemed, but you know, you had your yeah. own your own journey. And we did you know while you were at Mills that this is what I wanted to do? This is you were already uh, oh absolutely absolutely committed yeah. to painting. Mm-hmm. Talk about um, that journey to Mills that period, sort of before I guess sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Are you? Are you? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure the nature of work is different because I'm. I'm. I'm sitting. I'm looking right now at Prim Primpera, Primpera, mm-hmm. which is really you did in 2020. It's really beautiful. The ball and, and the, so the hands and so that that I'm going to guess without knowing that this is probably very different than the stuff you were doing say 20 years ago or you know absolutely. So, yeah. So talk about a little bit of your evolution of style and and you know, changes and, and interests and, and whatever comes to your mind doesn't have to be what I, what I think or in terms of, uh, you know, right. that period. Yeah. I think, I mean, when I started painting, it was really all about like trying to learn how to render things, how to make representational images. And, yeah, like, um, I just loved the process mm-hmm. and I was always driven. I was always drawn to the figure really. I wanted, I love narrative imagery. Mm. So once I was, um, in, uh, high school, so that was, I was, I went to boarding school actually. So I was living in New Hampshire, not too far from Massachusetts, but, um, may I ask what's high at Phillips Exeter Academy. Oh, you went to Phillips Exeter. Yeah. So that explains probably um, this big show coming up there, right? Isn't there a retrospective? Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the link for sure. Well, that's amazing. I looked at that and I thought, hmm, I wonder if you seem like a, seem like actually like you could have attended there. So my intuition was was on on the, on about that. But I hadn't located that particular school, but you know, going to a school like that must have been very Well, talk about that. I, I mean, it's a very it's a very particular milieu, right? It's a very Right. Um, oh God, that could be a whole like whole podcast on its own. Well, you might saying like it's, it's kind of like going to the. Um, oh God, what was that school? I saw a Harvard film. When I, you know, I used to, I was a member of the Harvard Film Archive for like twenty five years, and I would go to free screenings and meet people. And there was a film. It was like a special private school for girls. It's very famous. And someone made a documentary about it, and it had a. It's, it was like the L school, or the, it was a very short name. You probably know it. It's in New England. A lot of famous people have gone there. People have known. I mean, I don't know what made me think of that, but I saw a documentary about that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. talk about what Phillips Exeter, what you, you know, gleaned from that, or what you know how it um, changed you, or didn't change you, or, or you know. Uh, well, yeah, it gave me this like sense of independence that I really needed. It was basically like going to college, but yep. just going there a little bit younger. And mm-hmm. um, I really, I think I needed that time uh, to kind of like find my own identity apart from the Cranberry Farm, apart from my parents. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just always one of those kids that just wanted to live at school and always 
mm-hmm. be learning something. And so that was actually the first time I was actually talking to my teacher, my my Exeter art teacher this morning. Oh, really? She's in that show with me, yeah. Oh, wow. And she's amazing, Barbara Jenny. Barbara Um And, yeah, she's awesome. Um, and she was one of the people that first kind of pushed me to be like, okay, so you can paint. So what are you going to paint about? And like, where, what is, what's the point of all this kind of, and, mm-hmm. and finding a way to make more meaningful images. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's kind of what I left Exeter. Like that was one of the biggest assets that, that Exeter had for me was, was my relationship with her and how she mentored me and mm-hmm. pushed me. And um and gave me some kind of confidence, whereas like in the in in terms of other academics, mm-hmm. I kind of like I left more confident and less because I was around such incredibly brilliant people there that I felt pretty stupid. But also, uh. I I was kind of keeping up with them, and it was like um, it, I love that environment of like pretty rigorous academics. Mm-hmm. Um, craziness, but it's also like pretty, it can be pretty toxic. So, could, um, I mean, I went to, I went to Ilwakan Arts Academy. Uh, yeah, I think I remember talking to you about that. Yeah. We did discuss it, but Ilwakan had a very, I mean, there's similarities, of course, to Phillips Exeter, but it's also much, much, much more liberal than Phillips Exeter. I would imagine in many respects, but talk, talk about the top, uh, the, I guess the down, there's a downside to Phillips Exeter, right? Too. Um, well, yeah, that would be it. I think there was not much emphasis on the arts there. Um, it was very, very much, um, you know, general academics type school. I mean, they had a gorgeous art building, but I yeah. felt like there was no, not much life going on within it. Um, there was a lot of life in, you know, the science building mm-hmm. and um, yeah. on the sports field and, um so that was something I was always like fighting for mm-hmm. and I did feel dragged down, I think, by everything else that I had to um live up to while I was mm-hmm. there and academically and um but I think I mean, I, I think that's really like the downside is it, it was just really difficult for me. It was difficult to try to make art mm-hmm. and also meet all the academic needs, like taking foreign language and um science science is never my my good subject which is so funny because i'm Cause married, married to sciences <laughs> yeah talking about yeah not to get too far off topic but um you know one of the reasons i had you on the show was precisely your commitment to representation in the figural and also kind of what you do with that which to me seems unique so i just wanted to put, make sure i before i forget that that was one of my one of my motivations. So it's funny you were talking about that you figured out you didn't want to be you know follow abstraction and didn't want to do necessarily what the avant garde was at that time, right? You wanted to do right. figural, and so I guess that would have been when you when you when you found your your mojo or your your um, your metier your your style, right? It would have been then, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I feel like it, it wasn't until way later, like 
you know, 15 years later, like once I was in graduate school that I even considered kind of like losing the figure or um, focusing on, on other things. And I tried that for like a year mm. and it was, it was, you know, I always go back to the narrative power that mm-hmm. the human body can yep. have. Oh, it's just that, that resonance. It's amazing. And I really, I really feel that the art should continue to do that. Uh, I, I certainly don't think that's the only kind of art, far from it, but I think it's important. And I'm glad, I'm glad you're doing it. Um, and of course, as you know, some of your more recent work seems to flirt between abstraction and representation. There's a little, right, there's a little bit of an overlap, wouldn't you say, somewhat? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I try to let the medium take over a little bit, and that's where kind of the abstraction comes in, I think. Mm-hmm. You use cranberry juice in your in your painting, right? Uh, I use that's kind of like it's like a separate vein of work. I think it's it's another um, series. Um, like most of my my hours, I think are spent on these acrylic ink on drafting film paintings. And then I do have this like other line of work that's like small pieces mm-hmm. on antique linens and um, done with cranberry juice. Those are beautiful. I mean, cause those are, those of course are, um, I'm very impressed with the, with the, the paper doilies and that if that's what they are. And, and they, that, that's a, uh, yeah, it's really good. It's really good. That's a side of your work I did not. I would not have known had I not visited your website, which I highly recommend. Your website is really well well maintained, and it's very it's a good rep- representative of what um, what you do. Thank you. What was the period? And I know that you said that you did a lot of travel, Finland, and 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 then co- so college. So what? Um, talk about that transition from Phyllis Exeter. Just sort of doing it all over again because it's like high school is college, right? So was it in New right. or was it? Yeah. So I, I like when I met you, I was going to Leslie oh, in you- Cambridge, Boston. Yeah. Oh wow. And yeah, yeah, it was great. But yeah. I needed, I really needed to get farther from home, and I loved living in Boston. But um, mm. and so I ended up going to Rhodes College, which is in Memphis, Tennessee. Wow. And then to just kind of rattle off just so like then I so like it's there's all these little kind of pinpoints on the map that for me are important and kind of tell the story of how I got here but so I went from Memphis back to New England after Mm -hmm. after college and then um, I spent one year in Baltimore I did a a one-year graduate program at Maryland uh, Institute College of the Art yeah and then I went to Los Angeles, kind of on a whim, and spent a year and a half there. And that's when I met my husband. Wow. And um, I, I worked. I'm sorry, what would have been you went to Los Angeles? Because I, uh, I only discovered. 2012. 2012, yeah. I was actually visited there 12 and 13. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, I love Los Angeles. I've had many. Uh, I've had many Los Angeles-based artists on my show, and we always talk about how we feel that Los Angeles gets unfairly, um, well, you know, misunderstood a little bit. And it's a great city. And yeah, exactly. Um, as is Memphis, for that matter, or Baltimore. They're all different. But, but what, would you, what, was your, what was your feeling when you first got to Los Angeles? Or what was your feeling when you got to Tennessee and Rhodes? That must have been a very um, 
unusual change, right? It must have been. It must have been. Uh, uh, Definitely. I mean, well, that I was a New England girl. Yeah. I I really I hadn't seen like a city that was called a city, but felt more like spread out. Like I was so used to the congestion that we have in our New England cities. And I, I think that that's what a city is. Yeah, I've had a, I've had actual non-physical fights with people here that I live saying you do not live in a city. I'll tell them why do you call this a city, and they're like, well, it's technical. <laughs> the technical term is that you just call it a city because everything <laughs> a city that's not you know not I don't know, that's not like a you know a, a town without running water or outhouses right. Then it's a, if it's not that then it's city. But these right. don't seem to me at all like cities at all. They're like big suburbs that they just attach the word city to it. Anyhow, that's my own. Sorry to get me I know. I agree. <laughs> yeah, so that's what it felt like when I got there. But then also it felt a lot like Exeter, to be honest, because it, like the school was the exact same size. Interesting. It was this enclosed campus, which was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so like now when I think about my Exeter friends and my Rhodes friends, it's, it's interesting because, like, sometimes I get them a little mixed up. Although, I have to say, like, the, the student body at Exeter was much more diverse, and yeah. uh, whereas Rhodes was more, like, very Southern. Uh, um, uh, great, great people, but it was very um, much more specific to that area. And um, more homo- I would, so, yeah. To be polite about it, I would say it was a little more homogenous, <laughs> right? Yeah, more yeah. Homogenous, which... Um, that was something yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, but I mean, I think my most diverse academic experience came from grad school, which is in London. So then wow. there were just like countries from, yeah, I mean, everyone from all the, the European countries were there and then beyond. So that was really nice. Do you mind talking for a few minutes about coming to London for the first time or England and what your and when, what years that that was and what your experience was that? It because uh, it sure. because British culture has its own just as as they have as you know they have their own culture of acting and theater they also have their own culture of art, art teaching right or art right yeah absolutely your experience of that when you first got there what was London right well I was like totally overwhelmed by London being such a big, I mean, I was coming from LA, so it wasn't that crazy, but it just being such a different culture and having so much more history. I I loved it. I mean, I loved it from day one. And, um, but it was very intimidating, especially in Goldsmith at, so this very, high concept, kind of high theory, uh, graduate school of fine art. Um, and so I was, I was constantly like really, um, feeling inadequate in my kind of theoretical backing. Although I think in the long run, I wasn't, I just, I'm, I'm interested in that stuff and it's just not my, like, whereas like, rendering and painting is it comes easy to me the the theory and all of the reading and what, that is much you know. well, well hold that thought i just want to ask you a question about that a very concrete question so i'm somebody who is trained in theory and and history that part of it but i can't paint worth a damn as i can't draw so i, I i'm not i'm not i can't i don't have the the, the skill that, that you have you can paint 
but I'm just interested. Not all artists who are visual artists care about theory, and some of them are hostile towards it. And then there are others who are interested in it. And you're, you're sort of the latter, right? You're sort of somebody who wanted to become acquainted with that. It was not, was not a, a um, what is it, opposed to it necessarily, right? Absolutely. But you Absolutely. felt surrounded about it. And when you say surrounded by it, do you mean like a culture where you have to read Hal Foster's book, you have to read Fred James's book, you know, Rosalind Krauss, that kind of, that kind of art theory? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or even like bigger, headier... You know, like, um, uh, of course, I can't think of any. Oh, well, a lot of Deleuze, a lot of. Um, Guattari, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, stuff like that. A Thousand Plateaus and Anti Oedipus and. and um, yeah, stuff like that. And so, so I mean. It, too. Yeah. And I'm just, I am glad that I was in that um, kind of culture uh-huh. because it pushed me to be more, like, more comfortable there and more kind of um, have my eyes more open to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, I, but it, it also intimidated me at first for sure, because I think it, it's much more part of British art curriculum yeah. to read all that stuff yeah. than it is over here. Mm-hmm. I think over here it's more Rosalind Krauss, that kind of stuff. Um, whereas over there, it's like deeper, not just art-specific stuff. Well, it's, it's curious because their art departments are like our English departments. And then interesting, like yeah. English departments are sort of closer to what you're describing the art. It's almost like it's an interesting, um, an interesting. Um, I mean, it's interesting the cultures of, of, of nations and what they teach or don't teach or what they're right. Because um, a lot of the theories you describe are very Francophile, come out of France, right? Right, that's and, true. And yep. the irony, of course, is that traditionally England was very anti-French thought, anti-continental. They were more analytic, scientific philosophy, right, and very suspicious of anything. So it's almost like they, there was a flip-flop. You, you said that when you were there, they were they were more friendly towards ideas from France or ideas from the continent, like like they. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting shift, isn't it, in the culture? Of, um... mm-hmm. What do you attribute that shift to? Is it just what the teachers, when they grew up, what they were into, and then they went on to teach it, or just um, just uh, any ideas you have about what that might be? Or I have no idea. Yeah. Um, I just I think just compared to over here, it's just much more ingrained. There is like a kind of it's not just like academic intellect. It's like, it's just everyday cultural knowledge. It's yeah. it's just cooler to know about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I guess it's prized or it's, 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 um, it's respected and it's right. It's something. That, um, how, yeah. how is your painting starting to change when you're at Goldsmith? I mean, I'm sure I know that things are happening in your painting. What do you, what do you... Yeah, a lot of things. It was interesting because I was coming from a year of working in L.A. Um, for a sculptor. I was assisting a, a sculptor there. And so I was I was kind of... Um, I had hands-on, very uh, tactile and very um, highly attended to work. Like the surface of these sculptures was very... Um, uh, meticulous 
and and beautiful. And then I went to Goldsmiths where it was like the opposite kind of culture. It was um, uh, more minimalist, more conceptual, more, um, uh, uh, yeah, pared down. And that's kind of what happened to my work was I went from a place of kind of wanting to do sculpture or wanting to do um object to make objects i mean you are i have to say like as an artist i am so influenced by the culture around me and by the by the work that's being made around me and i like to make work that speaks to whatever that that kind of cultural language is so in grad school yeah it was really pared down and more um minimal and um i i mean i went through kind of crisis there as a lot of people do in MFA programs where they get their work very challenged. And I definitely was challenged as a, as one of the few kind of people working in a very traditional medium. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, 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 I went through this phase of dropping the figure from my work and seeing what happens with that. Mm. And that was interesting. I mean, it, it kind of, the work was very much about um, kind of went in and out of being about cranberry farming at that time yeah. and reflecting on that time. And um, so I was painting these paintings of like the machinery that um, littered the landscape I grew up on and the landscape it's, itself. Yeah, guess what I'm looking at right when you mentioned that sentence, I'm looking at the life 2011. You know the drawing. Oh yeah, exactly. Isn't yeah. It amazing that I, I flipped to that. I'm look as soon as you started talking about mechanical machinery and the lines. Yeah, so that's that's I think that's it, right? Right. The life. Yeah, exactly. Um, that whole uh, that gallery on my website called the the mechanics of fluids fluid. is kind of that it's that vein of my work. It's kind of the one that's more about the industrial and the farming and the landscape kind of not just about using the berry kind of within the body, but using that, that place of where I grew up. But when we, when we get to Ophelia and Ophelia too, that shades of what's to come, right? That's almost like yes, future. Definitely. Andrew Carter, which yes. I like, I like very much. It's almost like you're, you're, you're forming your own, your own, um, your own style, right? Your own, um, um, who you, I guess who you are. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I feel like eventually it took me a while, but I started using the berries in, uh, like kind of reclaiming them within the female body and, and feminizing them in a sense. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your 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 maternal or, or, or um, fem, uh, fem, feminine turn in your work or those concerns? Is that yeah? Does that yeah? Sure. Is that what is most recent or is that uh, older? What that what period? I guess that would be after. Yeah, that's, I'd say that's the most recent. Yeah. So obviously that would be after Britain. Uh, yeah. So where were you living at that time when this, there was this change in your work and, and is it reflected of things you're going on in your life, I imagine, right? Things you're experiencing. And, uh, what, yeah, absolutely. Your consciousness, you want to talk about, about that. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, it was after um, moving back to the States from Europe 
um, because I had been making, I had been making, you know, kind of like using the female body in these edgy kind of ways, like depicting the body kind of exploding out of itself. I had always been interested in that Mm -hmm. and always been interested in the ideas of, of the womb and the female body, Mm -hmm. um, not as a vessel, but like as a, as a birthing body. Um, and, and I say birthing as in like procreating, but also like Mm -hmm. something that, that expels something, you know, the, the, the kind of base aspects of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I moved back here, I, I was in this life stage where I'm, you know, starting to think about my own fertility, yep. starting to think about my own, um, like making a family. And, um, I pretty quickly ran into some fertility problems. And so in, in kind of like meditating on all of that and, wow and processing all of that Mm -hmm. I was meanwhile just thinking about images of motherhood and images of of the lactating body Mm -hmm. and using thinking about the the word fertility in terms of Mm -hmm. that body but also in terms of land in terms of agriculture and so Mm -hmm. suddenly the cranberries like were back in the work quite quite um quickly and yeah, very literally, like the berries mm-hmm. themselves becoming part of the body, using them in place of breath, mm-hmm. um, using them to talk about uh, things, things of value, things of, um, of of procreative value in a way. And so, like on this residency that I was just in in, in Finland, I wrote the residency um, proposal two years ago. So I was still in the thick of infertility treatment. Wow. And my my proposal was titled The Fruits of Infertility. So it was really a, a, an idea of marrying these two concepts of kind of the language that I grew up in and, and how patriarchal actually that language how patriarchal that culture was actually in a way um and then kind of taking the berry out of that culture reclaiming Mm -hmm. it putting it into this whole new context but still having that very um personal significance of like this berry is this kind of exalted thing in my life and um uh i love the way it kind of can play so many different roles in pieces like it can be it could be berries, it could be breasts, it could be eggs, um, it could be other bulbous parts of the body. Like mm-hmm. I think you'll see in like really recent work um, from 2020, I did a bunch of like paleolithic fertility figures, mm-hmm. but but kind of reimagined with these berry bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, since then, thankfully, my infertility treatment works. And I've had, I have a baby daughter. And so now the work is taking this whole, like I've been painting about motherhood for a while in my head anyways. It wasn't that obvious, but um, Mm -hmm. I, now that I have the actual experience of being that mother, it's like this whole new, um, I think of it as like ferocity or, or um, not. There's a word for entity. Yeah. 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 So I think of it as kind of like almost this like monstrous quality, the monstrous mother. And so monsters in general have been appearing more in my work. And I think of it in a good way, like this like aggressive monstrous mother who's very 
um, not just protective, but like strong. Uh-huh. Well, I, I would, I, I, it seems to me that would come to the, the matriarch in 2021 with the, um, uh, that painting, right? That, that, that series. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's, that was really recent. I did that piece just, um, a month ago. Yeah. Well, that's, so we're sort of out the date. I do want to go back a little bit to Finland. That must have been a change to go to Finland, right, in general. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely. What What comes to your consciousness when you think about Finland and your your, your year there or time there and, and how that uh, um, affects Um A lot of things. I mean, it was, it was really wonderful. It was the best art residency I've ever done. And um, it was just... Uh, so supportive and so what immediately I think of is um the other artists I was there with which were just this amazing team of um of people working in some way they their their work had some connection to the earth or the land um Mm -hmm. and so and and my work was really the only kind of traditional studio art type of work but these um, four other artists that were there with me um, really had, we were able to have such good dialogue mm-hmm. um, because of the way that our work engaged with with some kind of natural element. And there we were in the middle of kind of Finnish <laughs> coastal countryside. Uh, it was absolutely jaw-droppingly gorgeous. Um and so, and but we were there in you know sub-zero temperatures, very very cold. So we were hit with kind of the the landscape we were in every day, quite hard. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So, so you remember very much the cold, the temperature, but also the camaraderie. Yeah, you, absolutely. You were relating to artists working in a different style, right? So you said you, you were studio. Mm-hmm. You know, do I take that to mean that you were more representational and they were doing abstract or conceptual things or... or yeah, conceptual or like writing. Like two of them were really working more on writing. Uh-huh. One of them was more of a a kind of um, sound or performance artist. Uh-huh. So he was making works that were they were making works that were very um, uh, uh, kind of happenstance, very um, uh-huh. ephemeral, and. Um, Another of the artists was working more in a biological way, um, kind of looking at where, how her work interacted with with people and with biology and ethnobotany. So, huh. I would think you would have a lot in common with her, though, right? Didn't you? Didn't you find that there was some some? Uh... Yeah, we definitely talked a lot. It's just so funny to me because I've never thought of myself as interested in botany or even being that connected to like the land, but it's just like, it's <laughs> such a part of my core that I don't even really recognize it, you know? Yeah. Well, you can see it in your painting. So yeah, it seems very evident. Um, it's interesting to me that you, you were all doing these very different styles yet sort of uh, in relation with you, with each other, right? You said that 
you would talk with each other about things. Do you feel that that kind of, um, I guess, diversity, do you think that's a new thing in general, that that's encouraging, that's happening with artists, that they're putting aside that they're, they're, you know what I mean? They're kind of, there's only one way to do. Yeah, I don't know if it's new, but I think it's definitely... Um, it's the, it's the path that I've chosen. Like I've always chosen not to be in groups of painters, but in groups of other art minds, whether those are actual makers or writers, Uh um, performers. Uh, I think being, I, I think art is becoming more, um, multidisciplinary for sure. And I'm not saying painting's dead at all because I am a painter and I, I fight for painting till the end. But well, you're on the show because I want um, to defend painting. Right? Being engaged, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the different mediums sure. is the best way to be. But you're 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 on you're friendly relations with other mediums and other, and which is um, which is important. I'm wondering yeah. what kind of things have you learned from these other mediums? Like, say in Finland, what were things? that maybe wouldn't be evident to an outsider like myself or an observer like myself. And you're like, well, I got that idea in my painting, even though it comes from a totally unexpected place. Are there things like that you can think of that are, that are, um, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if that question makes sense or not, or if I'm expressing myself well, but. Um, having to do with Finland specifically? Well, having to do with uh, your work changing because of, uh, relationship with a, a different kind of art medium or somebody doing something not in painting, right? Somebody in sound or just whatever you think of, well, that was really, that really inspired me or that, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think what I like about being around those kind of people is that we, because they're not painters, we don't end up just talking shop about painting. Mm-hmm. And as much as I love doing that, I think what really gets me going more is what the paintings are about and what these images are about and what they what they conjure and mm-hmm. what what kind of reactions um, people have to them. It's not really mm-hmm. my my paintings as much as like I know you you commented on my like recent what I've been sharing um, on social media being very like, I've been talking a lot about my process, but my paintings are not really about that. You know, they're not about the process, but my process is pretty like, it definitely feeds what they're about. Yeah. I just think, I, I don't know. I think, I think I like being around people with all different kind of, um, levels of expertise to bring mm-hmm. to the floor, you know? Well, you know, when you read something, like, I guess I, re- I remarked upon that because I don't know anything about it. I don't, I don't know anything about, I don't know tempera from pain. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't say I'm totally ignorant, but that's not something I know about. So to me, it's fascinating to read, you know, an artist talk about that. Even, even if it's uh, not, not the most important thing, even if it's, you know, it is interesting to me as someone that doesn't fully understand it, you know, fully comprehend it. Yeah, I um, feel the exact same way. When I read about other artists and their process, that's why I want to share it. Because it's like, oh my God, it's so interesting to me. Because you look at images 
like mine or like a lot of other painters and not even like mine there's a lot of painters where you're like wait how was this made mm-hmm. and it's almost like a secret that the mm-hmm. the painter keeps from you by not really letting you in on how it was made um and that's why I love hearing about it but I also love paintings where it's like really clear that it was made in such and such a way or it was mm-hmm. like super fast like I love I, sometimes I like, I love seeing painters who are so good that they can do something super fast and get something across in so few marks. You know, if there's like, there's, there's a whole, um, there's a whole realm of, of kind of levels that you can go to with painting for sure. Mm -hmm. Do you mind discussing your, 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 if you, you know, the work schedule you have or environment or how, if you're slow, fast, medium, different times, or what, what you have to say about, about that? Because you, you mentioned uh, you admire people that work fast, and, and I don't know. Sure, yeah. I mean, for me, um, with the, the, the regular daily grind, it's all, it kind of revolves around um, the other things going on in my house. I think using Finland as a good example, because that was kind of like a very, that was two months of really focused time where I had uh, ex- more childcare than I normally have. Huh. So I was Sorry. able to focus even more and, and spend a lot of hours in the studio, mm-hmm. which for me um, takes form of really a lot of research, a lot of looking at images and kind of gathering images and then drawing. And whether that drawing takes place on Photoshop or on a like a uh, big piece of paper, usually it's a big piece of paper lately. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of where the painting starts and they start from ideas. Like I, I don't, I don't often just start from nothing. Like I usually have, some idea and, and a group of references for each painting. Mm-hmm. And I begin to lay it out in a drawing. And then the, the kind of the wonderful thing about the medium that I use is that it, it's a transparent, a translucent film. Mm. Um, so those drawings that I make, they can be kind of crappy because as long as the structure of them is what I want, that's what I use. And then I lay the piece of drafting film over that drawing. Mm. And um, I just use the drawing as like a guide. And then I pull out my ink and whatever else I might be using. And I add a ton of water to them. And I, I paint them onto that drawing, basically. But I put that drawing like behind the piece. And so in the end, I take the drawing away. And there's none of that original kind of architecture of the of the thought now it's like this new piece that's that's pretty edited down usually i don't like follow the drawing perfectly a lot of the time um and i i end up you know it just gives me a lot of freedom that way working this way yeah Mm -hmm. well when i'm looking at in front of me the matriarch anything you want to say about that particular painting or um, sure. That's a good one. Um, that was that and the, the other one to the right of it, non-stress test. Those were both kind of pretty, um, 
they weren't as involved in terms of like layering and reference images as some of my works can be. Because some works I've used mm -hmm. like uh, a type of printing into the work too. I use like uh, image transfers sometimes to include photographic imagery into the mm -hmm. painting. And these pieces have none of that. They yep. they're just ink on drafting film, hmm. and they they aren't taken from specific references. A lot of my paintings, I I actually take images of myself as reference images. Mm -hmm. But these paintings were kind of totally out of my head, and so those drawings um, were kind of. Uh, riffing on the, the the maternal body or the mm -hmm. pregnant body or the postpartum body um or on some kind of like maternal image mm -hmm. and um so the matriarch the one that you brought up mm -hmm. um i started by just drawing this kind of boulder like giant woman i thought of her as like a titan kind of like the titan from ancient like ancient greek myth Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I just thought of her as kind of coming out of the earth. And in the drawing, I ended up making her not coming out of the earth. Mm -hmm. Like I decided to have her on top of another person, basically kind of flopping over this other body who like you just see the back of the head of this other person. Mm -hmm. And this, this person's holding up kind of her That's slumbering bod, torso. And she doesn't have any bottom half, which That's is right. also the other thing. That's right. Um, but she kind of has this odd, like, odd stare. And it's, re it's remarkable. I mean, the expression on the face is just, I mean, that, that's, that's unique, that, 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 that um, to me, uh, in that painting. That's, that really stands out. Um, I mean, in general, there are other features of the painting that I see in other paintings, but that's that face. I can tell that you put that was important that you. And you, it looks like here, like you have sculptures, so strange legs and and soft sucker. That's these, of course, are older thir thirteen. Do you still do sculpture like that, or is that was that a kind of a. Um, of that period, just I that don't. You don't. I would be interested in doing it again for sure because I just love, I love how much kind of hand labor goes into sculpture and kind of the the idea of bringing something to life. And I did those at a time right after I had been working for a sculptor, and I don't know the process of making somebody else's work makes you want to make your own work so, so much. Yeah. It's like, I would just come home itching to make my own work. And what I, like my hands were used to doing at that point was making three-dimensional objects. And I was like, oh, I wonder what my work would look like if I tried to make it three-dimensional. So that's kind of where those two sculptures came from, um, is me uh, taking... Like, just the same way I would make an idea for a painting, or the hmm. same way I made the idea for, for the matriarch, the way that I kind of um, just told you about it, was just making some mm -hmm. kind of drawing, whether in my sketchbook or in my head, and mm -hmm. then um, trying to execute it however I right. can. 
And then, of course, there's there's a painting that looks very much like you, or as I remembered you when you were 1920. It's Violent Excess. Yeah. That looks, I mean, it, that looks like you, very much like the Alexander I know, except without the gun, without the revolver and not the... the, the <laughs> that's cool. Right. Um, yeah, that was one of the first times I, I painted at a larger scale, too. And that painting, I mean, it came from, like, an image I saw in the news of them raiding... Oh, God, I'm now I'm going to... I'm going to forget all the names, but in Libya, they were raiding this palace. Um, The military was raiding the palace and posing with this golden mermaid. And I thought that this golden mermaid contrasted with the gun, contrasted with the interior. Uh It was just too good not to reinterpret in my own, my own way. And it's so funny because when I um, went to Goldsmith, one of the, one of my professors there told me that that painting is what got you in, <laughs> which is interesting. Well, that, that, I guess that's the culture of Goldsmith. That would have been important to them. Yeah. Is that kind of, um, when I say culture, I mean the, the aesthetic culture, right? Which is very politicized, I'd imagine. Yeah. Very politically So, so I guess a, a work of art that has a, seems to have a political consciousness about it, or at least that, that's very, um, I would say sharper or in front, they would like, you said they'd like that. That was their, I guess their preference or their, their, um, you know. Yeah. Well, it's loaded, right? There's something there to talk about for sure. Right. It's interesting because you have this, all these other sides to you with the color. And the, um, do you mind talking about your concept of color? Cause it is unique. Um, I yeah. like, 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 um, I don't know what painting uses an example. We, the matriarch that uses, or the nostrils test, the way you blend, I guess, blend your colors, um, or see, right. or seated row, which is really something. That's incredible. That seated row. I mean, they're just um, it's unique, and I don't really know. I wouldn't know how to describe it because, again, I don't know the really the terminology. I don't know much about paint, but you seem to have your own way of making the the end colors that you that you do make you're, you're blending something right. there you're doing some some kind of a um yeah well those are definitely the colors that i love um kind of uh it's so interesting to me because i always think that i use like i i paint with like a full palette like i try to hit all the different color groups that's what i think i do mm-hmm. like not within one painting, but just across all of my paintings. Okay. But if you look at them, you'll see there's a lot of warm, big, warm color palettes, a lot of red. Ochre. Um, the ochre and... and yeah. yeah. People always comment on that, and I, it makes me realize, oh, yeah, I don't use much of the other colors, but it's... I, I'm so drawn to those colors that are indicative of life of the body you know and it's just it's just what what definitely my hands want to work with whereas sometimes I'll challenge myself and and say okay you can't use any of those colors um Mm. and so like from what you see on my website like I'm just looking now uh Mm. mamalia like she wolf painting Mm. and then there's another painting down below 
called mm-hmm. Sheila's Seven Sorrows. And in that one, I really went out of my way to use blues. And because I think that it really, um, it bolstered the, the conceptual subject matter of that piece, which was more about some kind of like death or some kind of miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And I say, I don't say that lightly because I did not go through a miscarriage, but I, I was so, um, surrounded by so many women that have. And uh-huh. so that piece, um, was really meditating on that in a way and on the ideas of fertility, like I was talking about formerly. Uh, but so I think color is like very conceptual to me, right? It, it definitely has to support what's going on in the work. Um, and, but I definitely have my comfort zone for sure. And that's similar to like the matriarch. And, but I honestly think that the matriarch was also a product of, the sunrises in Finland hmm. were just the most intense, amazing, like way more intense than a California sunset. Oh, like no. it, it, the light would just take over the land so quickly. And in this kind of fluorescent, um, pink, yellow, orange glow hmm. kind of quality. So that's, I think, where the palette for those two paintings really... I, I can tell you, hearing you describe it, it makes me want to travel and visit there. I've never been there. Right. <laughs> I would love to look at that. Um, that that sounds like really something, if that, especially if inspired these these paintings. Uh, yeah. How about the eyeballs in the trapper? Or the, eye, the eyes? Oh, yeah. That's right? an odd one. Um... Yeah, this was at a time when I was in between, kind of, I had just finished grad school and I was figuring out, okay, what are my paintings going to be now? And I was using these image transfers more and more. So this piece came from, it started as just an image transfer. So it was a photograph of these ceramic eyes that were part of the collection at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh, wow. And I'm not sure of when, where they, whether they were, like, um, classical or what era they came from. But I, know, I think I know the work you're talking about. I think I do. Really? Yeah. And it's, so, it's definitely comp classical. Old, 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 old. Yeah. Wow. So it started with those eyes. I was just so drawn to them and how simple they are. They're made of this like very, very textured looking mm-hmm. rock looking ceramic really. And, um, kind of putting them in the middle of one of my very non rock like compositions of ink, mm-hmm. uh, which is, which is basically like just a, a big swath of different ink colors poured into one another mm-hmm. and, and, and given a lot of movement and they're allowed to kind of sit on this dressing film and make this gradation as the pigment kind of separates from the bonder and it gets watered down. Mm-hmm. So you get these textures and then so there was a lot of that there, but I covered a lot of it with gold leaf. Yeah, um, gold leaf is really, um, well, the gold leaf is so important in that work. I feel because of the because of how it offsets the eyes, right? And then the and the, so it's very um, it's beautifully um, arranged. 
Every, everything you. seems perfect in that work, but what you're talking about, because you have to, if you do one thing, you have to offset it a certain way, right? And, and you have to. Right. And I don't know the terminology for that. I mean, I only know it intuitively as, a, as again, as an outsider, as an observer, as a fan or appreciator, any of those things. I'm still an outsider. I don't know. You know it from the inside because you do it, but, there, but there's. Um, um, yeah, I think it's kind of part of what I figured out while I was at grad school is kind of um, some of my my um, tutors and my visiting professors there were really helpful in kind of pointing out um, sometimes my paintings had too much of the same language going on in it, too much of just that inky, flowy language. Mm-hmm. And so I started, that's when I started layering these image transfers in there was yeah. because I really liked how it looked to have like a mechanically produced image mm-hmm. integrated into that supernatural, super manual yeah. um, painterly style. And then in this piece, for example, like it's further layered, but also the gold leaf. So there's even like a greater sense of materiality mm-hmm. um, when that very opaque, flat, mm-hmm. but reflective um, kind of material is added to the surface. You know, I love hearing you discuss your work. You're so articulate, you know. Um, you express, I think you express really well what you're doing in a way that the a, a listener, an audience can, can understand and, and, and um, appreciate. I, I appreciate that you do that, especially important on a podcast like this. So, so, so thank you for that. Thank you. Well, yeah, it's like my favorite thing. I love talking about art. I love talking about yeah. other people's art, my art. I think it's important. And as an artist, I think, you know, it, you shouldn't like shirk around talking about it because it's like the, the basis of your life. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's what, it's really what, what I'm here for. I hope, you know? Oh, Sure. Do you want to talk about works you're in the middle of now, like in the present, or not discuss that, or do you, or anything else? I mean, that's because I mean we're in an un, admittedly in an unusual time. Or um, talk more about your own finally giving birth to your own baby, your own. Um, yeah, well, I could talk about all of that kind of in one because I think what I'm working on now. So I'm just coming back from this like two month period of intense like execution. So a lot of paintings were executed during that time. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I'm formulating new ideas and reflecting more and more. And I think a lot of these recent paintings were, yeah, they're about like this postpartum experience, this, um, yes. this experience of giving birth too. Um, and so I've been processing that in the work mm-hmm. because I feel like it really complements the, the the longer trajectory of the work and exploring the ins and outs of the female body and how it's what it feels like to be in that body mm. and what I'm surrounded with now is like this like um like this postpartum support group that I go to and oh. like the stories from these women are are it's it's such a universal it's you know very gendered, but very universal um, among women that so many, most women experience this. And, and yet there are so many angles that aren't talked about and the discomfort and the pain and the kind of the socialized nature that we hide um, women's bodies 
Mm-hmm. Um, even though they're always plain sight, I mean, they are the center of, of art history and of yeah. advertising. But um, but the way that we talk about them is has always been so um, tight lips in some ways. And mm-hmm. so I think I'm trying to explore paradox. Yeah, it's a that, paradox. That experience. The paradox of being everywhere, revealed all the time, but also hidden at the same time. Right. Or, or, or what's hidden is what people don't want to show, right? Which I would guess you're saying is a maternal, is, is, am I right? It's only certain. I'm sure you have a lot yeah. of well, ideas yeah, about it's like, Yeah. The maternal body is still a sexual body. The, the maternal body is still um, like a woman's body. It's not right. like this um, this. Virgin Mary perfected mm-hmm. um, kind of uh, sexless thing, and so there's that exploration. But then there's also the exploration of like the the more intuitive and animalistic kind of qualities mm-hmm. of being a mother and being in that body. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really gotten to a place where I really because I don't want. I also don't want to reduce it to just the maternal experience. Like that's definitely not the mm-hmm. the only thing it's about. I mean, there's all this other stuff I've been really into lately, like witchcraft uh-huh. and horror movies and like big, heavy metaphorical stuff that I that visuals. What horror movies do you like? Did you like Somerset or Summer? Um, Did you I, see it? I don't know. You mean Midsummer? Midsummer, yeah. Yeah, that's like in my very, very top, top movies for sure. Um, I, I love the see, genre of I, like yeah. that genre, yeah. I went to see Midsummer twice in the theater. Twice, not once. So that, that tells you that, you I tells you I didn't feel it was a waste of my time. But what, what, what do you make of that picture? That was something, huh? What that was, what do you, any thoughts on that? I don't know why that particular film came to mind, but. It seems like so. Well, yeah, it definitely spoke to my um, uh, my folklore and fertility heart because it's um, super. I, I feel like it. There's a lot of inferences to not just well, not Scandinavian folklore, but it almost felt like American in some ways, and yeah. like all of these fertility rites and fertility rituals. Um, and the fact that it all takes place in plain daylight, it's, it's amazing how yeah. dark it can be mm-hmm. while being so beautiful and right. light. Yeah, well, it's, that, it's making a horror film in broad daylight, like having a film noir in sunny California, right, in, in broad daylight. Right. Like Chinatown or something, you know. Um, but I was very, yeah, like you, I was very impressed by that film. What other reason yeah. does the Babadook share space in terms absolutely, of absolutely, absolutely, and I think I need to rewatch that now that I'm a mother because there is a definite motherhood element in that movie that I want to yeah kind of reinvestigate. But I think Badook. like one of my favorite um, favorite two recently, and this has to do with New England, is Robert Eggers, his two films. Um, the Lighthouse, oh, and because they have such um, dedication to history and I, of, of place, which yeah. I think is so interesting in yeah. combination with um, the witchcraft and mm-hmm. or, or mythological elements that are in those movies. 
Well, I'm, I'm so, I didn't know we had this in common. It's fascinating that you, Babadook and, and Midsummer. There's a, that was a really good, two years ago, it was a really good period, right, for horror filmmaking. There was a lot. Oh, yeah, there was absolutely. A lot I just fun. watched this documentary on folk horror, mm-hmm. which is really good. I highly recommend it. It's called, like, um, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Um, really good documentary, just kind of, like, strumming away at, like, all of these kind of rural uh, mm-hmm. or folklore-embedded horror movies that have mm-hmm. come out of the last 50 or so years. Mm-hmm. I guess, of course, an older example would be my favorite era of the seventies, the Wicker Man, right? So, is is a right? Yeah, absolutely. Very Wicker Man, of course, is very different in, in sensibility, style than say than than Midsummer, which is very much a millennial generation's type yeah, in sensibility. I think. I guess right. Maybe much younger people and and maybe uh, generations' feelings about about um, conformity or. Um, rules and laws and all that um what what else about that's interesting so horror and what witchcraft are you interested in are you are you um are you um yeah kind of more like the witch in culture and the way that she's appeared and um i think well honestly part of what got me into even like using the term or whatnot was because of the infertility treatment process. Mm-hmm. I, I like, I felt like I was the subject of witchcraft in a way. It was, it just yeah. felt like, so I had this like coven of women working oh. on my body, caressing the eggs out of my body, you know, okay. because infertility treatment is so intense and it, it doesn't just involve like, super hard medical science. There's a lot of things that women do. And it, this is not like loosey goosey stuff. My, uh, my reproductive endocrinologist, who is like renowned in her field, amazing doctor. Mm-hmm. She, you know, she said, please go to this fertility acupuncturist. Please take all these supplements. Like there's so many yeah. things that you do to support the process because yeah. You want to do everything that's within your power to to make it happen. And so, you know, there I was sticking myself with needles of hormones that's and then right. going to an acupuncturist that's who was right. sticking me with all other kinds of needles. Well, you, you, you said you, you were close to be, uh, you said, well, it's not Lucy. I mean, I am Lucy Goosey. I am a woo person. I'm. <laughs> no, no, I like the woo stuff. I am thoroughly non-scientific. I mean, I believe in astrology for crying out loud. And I, you know, I have beliefs that probably most physicists probably would not approve, but, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm very, uh, as you, it's a short, long way of saying I'm very open-minded to all those things and, and very interested in it. I mean, I remember I'm meeting Margot Adler, you know, cause, uh, cause my father's and our family uh, cosmetics company, I would meet Starhawk and Margot Adler and, and, women involved in some of that, some of those, um, some of those ideas. Have you, have you read Driving Down the Moon by Margot Adler? Does that interest you or is that? No. Yeah. Who, wait, who is that? Margot, M-A-R-G-O-T, Adler, Drawing Down the Moon. She's a, um. Oh yeah. 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 I've seen that book. Yeah. It's a good book. I mean, I got to, I got to talk with her and I got to meet Starhawk once 
of course, that was back in the 80s. And, and I guess that was the 80s was a time when people were into that stuff a lot, actually, then. I don't know. It's, it's kind of different now. I think it's come back or there's a resurgence. I don't know. I don't really know. Right. A lot of people get very, especially scientifically minded people, get very uncomfortable when I disclose those things because they're often, you know, they're dismissive or they, or they say, well, that's just hocus pocus or that's just, you know. Right. And my husband is definitely that way. But then again, he also, he was involved in that whole infertility process too, obviously. And so (laughs) he was totally behind whatever we could do. And he also really loves all this like folklore stuff alongside me. And he's really interested in, in all of the kind of tropes and that. But yeah, if I do, if we bring up astrology with him, he's gonna like put, yeah, he's gonna shut down. Well, I'm just disclosing that. I mean, of course, you don't. Have, it's not about agreement, disagreement. It's just when you when you're a host of a show, you you can't hide yourself, and you have to. Absolutely. You know, if I if somebody that I like I like Margaret Adler, who is a Wiccan, a, a Wiccan, a priestess and journalist. I mean, that's gonna. There are some people who are gonna be fine with me being into her, and other people that will be uncomfortable, right? Or will be, you know. Because um, because people have different opinions, right? We live in a <laughs> we live in a pluralistic age where people believe different things, right? Clearly, right. Um, so um, I don't know. There's a lot to. Is there anything else that comes to mind that you want to discuss? That's important or um, to you um, at this moment? Because I know all good things come to an end, and that includes even this episode. Um, right. <laughs> Is there anything you want to say yeah. about your own being a mother, about your own motherhood now since it's new and, and your own yeah. painting or say whatever? Yeah. What do you want to say about it? Or what do you I mean, it's interesting to me because I, I feel like part of my realization in this motherhood role is watching kind of what I was talking about earlier is how we've all been socialized to kind of make light of motherhood and to look at it as this really, um, angelic kind of role and um i think i like to look at the darker side of it obviously of of this idea of maternal ambivalence yeah but meanwhile i feel like my past thus far has been quite joyful it's been quite um like my the baby that i've had she sleeps through the night she's um she's a very good baby Mm -hmm. and so I haven't, although I, I did have um, like a really awful journey with breastfeeding where I had set myself up that I was just going to be this major badass breastfeeder and yeah. I like it's going to be like the way that I fed my child. And then it mm-hmm. turned out that everything that I could, like, I couldn't do anything more than I did. I, I tried everything to breastfeed and my I just my body wouldn't make the milk and it's probably related to why I had infertility I'm not sure no one's sure but that was kind of that definitely affected the first round of work that I was making right after giving birth was like I went from this like fascination and reverence of the female breast to kind of like this very um very uh double-sided relationship with it where i was like angry at mine and at my body and um at 
kind of like just just having that feeling of loss of losing that mm. that um, aspect of what would have been part of this journey with this baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but since then, like I, I feel like that was a blip in time in a way, um, but it definitely affected my work because I would I would talk about kind of like the the those aspects of lactation in depicting the breasts so the berries are all the more powerful to me now like I, I've painted a lot about um, breastfeeding before and after so it's mm-hmm. um, that was like an interesting aspect of my journey since then um, but now kind of settling into this rhythm that I have now with a, a nine month old baby yeah um, now it's just kind of coming to terms with what the rest of her life is going to look like within mine and, and how, um, how it's just like a constant, mm-hmm. it's a constant transition, right? Like they grow so fast that there's like, yeah. you can't really like settle into <laughs> any, any one stage. Yeah. That's very beautiful. Do you mind me asking the, when she was born, what, the month of her of her um, her birth? Yeah, it was April. Oh, April twenty twenty one. Okay. Yeah, and she came like two weeks late, and so it was like one of the most anxiety filled times of my life because there I was, I I had gone through infertility. It took me so much and so long to get pregnant, and then I was mm-hmm. pregnant. And I, was, I felt like I was pregnant forever and that this baby was just never going to come. Because what infertility does to your brain and to your mentality is so, so intense. I never understood before I went through it. Mm-hmm. The just level that it can bring you to depression, to despair, because of how much you're trying to get something and how little control you feel you have over it mm-hmm. is just so intense. Mm-hmm. And so it filled my entire pregnancy with yes. kind of disbelief in a way. Like I couldn't believe it was happening. So there was like almost this, like I was really happy to be pregnant and I was really um, treating my body with total respect and being super, um, not just healthy, but like do, doing all the research that I could in terms of like, how should this, how should I treat my body right now so that the baby like has the best birth and the best early life um but uh at the same time I was like I have I don't think this baby is ever going to come like this is just a barrage it's a very weird experience and especially when we got through that last two weeks it was just like okay I'm just not going to expect that this is going to happen anymore because it's just like Uh it's almost a tease but then she finally came, and it was wonderful. So, <laughs> well, that that that's good news. I mean, I'm happy that she did, of course, and uh, um, and of course, I know that your paintings in the future will bear the mark of that experience, right? Still, right? So you're gonna, yeah. You speak so eloquently about your infertility, and also eloquently about, I guess, what it did to your brain and your consciousness, and of course, that's going to reflect in your painting. I think kind of, kind of like any artist, right, makes something that comes out of their own. I guess all works of art do have a bit of autobiography in them, wouldn't you say? Whether it's a poem or... Yeah, or- yeah. and that's always, like, something that I've been 
kind of waffling in terms of like how much of that do I tell? And it was just recently kind of in, in the Finland residency, I gave a presentation where I asked for feedback on that. And it was like a resounding kind of, yes, share the personal, at least amongst the audience I had there. And it's interesting because sometimes people are very, oh, no, TMI, you know, don't tell me everything about the painting. Yeah. You know, and, and I totally get that too. Like there's a sense of mystery and that people like to maintain so that they can project their own experience on, right. onto, you know, paintings. But unless they're, um, unless if they're, you want me to talk about it, I can talk Unless they're unfortunate it. enough to be on Journey Even Speed podcast and somebody wants to hear exactly. that, all that stuff. I hope you don't mind sharing it. I've, I've really, um, I've really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed the beauty and the eloquence and, and also that you went into, into the weeds on all this. And I, um, I'm very, thank yeah. you. Yeah. I really enjoyed it too. Absolutely. I'm very thankful. And I, and I hope you keep us posted on when you complete a new work, um, and your future ventures and how your little girl's doing and anything. I will. So thank you. Thank you very much, Alexandra. Thank you so much, Mitch. It was so good to talk to you. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you. Mm -hmm.